I know that I've told you all this before, but about over nine years ago now, when Katie and I first came to visit Broadway and none of you knew who we were, we were just sneaking in the back door, thinking about whether or not God was calling us here. The adjective that we used to describe this congregation when we went back and told our family and friends about you was responsive. That there's something about the spirit that God has given to this church where people expect to hear from the Lord and to respond to him. And so we heard that today in testimony with our youth. Praise God that that spirit is being passed on to the next generation. We saw it today, and I think all felt it today, experienced it today in the singing, where we are expecting to hear from him and to respond to him. We are, uh, this fall, looking at the characteristic of our church called steadfast worship. And I said last week that worship is a response to who God is, a response to what he has done. It doesn't begin with us. It's not about us. It's not about our preferences or our styles. It's about a response to who God is and what he has done for us. I want to ask you this question to begin the sermon this morning. When you think about God, who or what do you imagine? What image comes to your mind? What thoughts do you have when I say the word God? I think when we say God to one another or even to a non-believer, I think we kind of assume that we all have the same sorts of ideas in mind about what we mean by God. But I'm not sure if there's maybe another word that might offer more variety of definitions than the word God. Even if I were to speak to each one of you, we all... Um, believe the same thing about God, but we may have different images or thoughts that come to our mind, different conceptions of God in our mind. Uh, for many people, God is this old man with a beard up in the sky. Um, for others, he's this terrible judge who doesn't want us to have any fun. Um, for others, more philosophical types, they believe that God is just a figment of people's hopes and imaginations. For other people, God may be like this big, harmless teddy bear who just always kind of says yes and makes us feel warm and fuzzy. We all assume that we know what we mean when we say God, and I think we usually think that the person we're talking to is thinking the same thing that we think when we say God. Uh, but many of us, most of us, have very different conceptions and definitions of who God is. And part of following Jesus is to be able to recognize and to say no to false or distorted views of God that are offered to us. In this fall, we're diving into this key trait called steadfast worship. In these first few weeks is to introduce or to reintroduce to you again what the Bible tells us about who God is and what he is like. And the scriptures from beginning to end reveal to us that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've been encouraged by a few of you who have reached out to me this week. Um, 
talking about how even just the, the first sermon and the curriculum that we've written has begun to help you think a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more deeply about who God is. And certainly I've had the task of preaching about the Trinity, and that has caused me to think differently and to hopefully go deeper into my own ideas and conceptions of who God is. And so I would like to ask for you to join me in prayer as we continue to talk about worshiping the Trinity and talking about God the Father this morning. God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am very aware of my inadequacy today to communicate these truths to your people. So Lord, may your spirit speak through me and to these brothers and sisters of mine. Lord, we are all inadequate to fully hear about all of who you are. But Lord, I pray that the reality of you as father today would find its rightful place in our hearts and in our minds, that you would be known in that way to us today. Amen. So before diving into sort of the sermon proper, I, I wanted to give you some suggestions. If you in your own life would like to know and study and understand the Trinity more, just want to give you some suggestions for some places to start uh, for that. Um, first of all, is uh, you should start with the Bible, especially the Gospels, especially the Gospels. The reason that the biblical writers and then the early church developed this understanding of the Trinity was because they encountered Jesus. And when they encountered Jesus, they eventually had to reckon with the fact that they had encountered God. And that encounter blew their conceptions of God. They had their own conceptions of God like we do. And that encounter with Jesus blew open their own conceptions of God. And they had to go back to the Old Testament scriptures and discover what it meant to be meant for God to be the kind of God who would take on flesh and dwell among us. And that had to reorient all of what they thought about who God was. So if you want to begin to better understand the Trinity, I encourage you to read through the gospel stories with the Trinity in mind. How does Jesus talk about himself? How does Jesus talk about the Father and his relationship with the Father? How does Jesus talk about the Spirit and his relationship with the Spirit? Read the story of the baptism of Jesus and reflect on how in that moment, in that story, all three persons of the Trinity are there in that moment, glorifying one another, expressing their love for one another, and calling Jesus into his mission. You can read through the story about Jesus and his disciples in the upper room from John 13 through 17. All sorts of, uh, most of our Trinitarian understanding comes from those four or five chapters in, that, in the upper room. Um, as Jesus speaks to his disciples about who he is and how they can understand that there's this counsel or the Holy Spirit who's going to come to them. How God has been at work, the Father has been at work in his life to glorify him, uh, to now send him all the way to the cross. So... If you want to begin, let's look at the Bible, in particular, the Gospels. A second suggestion would be to study the creeds of the church, in particular, the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, and Chalcedonian Creed. Broadway, you probably don't know those very well. Okay, these are not creeds that we talk about a lot, but they all were developed and taught by the church because of a particular false teaching that had come into the church that the church needed to then respond to. 
And so if you can understand a little bit of the history, learn a little bit of the history about why that creed was developed, and then to read through them, they really are beautiful. And they've been a wonderful guard, uh, guardrail for the church, keeping us in line and making sure that we do not wander too far away um, from the true nature of who God is revealed to us in the scriptures. So that would be a second suggestion that I would have for you. Wikipedia is a great place to start on uh, just uh, studying some of these and getting a basic understanding of, of what they are. And then just a couple of, of modern-day uh, books that have been written on it that have been helpful for me. First is Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, and the second is The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. If you are a reader, enjoy reading. These would be two uh, great places for you to start on uh, very recent books that have been written on the Trinity. And as you read, there's, there's a couple things that I want you to remember as, as you do your own study or as we are hearing the sermons preached or as you're talking about the Trinity in your small groups going through the curriculum. There's a couple things that are important to remember. And the first is this, is that we are limited, that we are limited in our under, ability to understand fully who God is. We are finite, limited by time and space in a way that God is not. God is infinite and exists outside of time and space. And so there are things about his nature that we are simply not going to be able to fully understand. And we need to start by being okay with that. Uh, this picture here, uh, this uh, painting is a painting um, about a legendary story of St. Augustine who encountered a boy on a beach. And the legendary story goes in this way, that um, as Augustine was writing his book on the Trinity, he was walking along the beach and he came to this boy who had dug this hole in the ground. And Augustine began watching this boy going over to the Mediterranean Sea and taking a, a bucket and then pouring it into the hole and doing this over and over again. And Augustine came to him and said, boy, what are you doing? And the boy said, I'm going to fill up the entire Mediterranean Sea into this little hole. And Augustine said, don't be stupid. That hole is not big enough to fill all of the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. And he said, well, I'm not as stupid as you trying to write a book on God. <laughs> we are finite. Our minds, like that little hole, cannot contain all that there is to know about who God is. And trying to do so is like pouring the ocean into a little hole. So the first thing I want us to remember is that we are finite and limited. We are not going to understand fully who God is. But the second thing is, we can know true things about God. So while it is true that that hole in the ground wasn't going to be enough to fill all of the Mediterranean Sea, part of the Mediterranean Sea did go into that hole. And so for us, as we reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity, it is far beyond what our minds can understand or hold. But that doesn't mean that our minds can't hold anything. Our minds can hold true things about the knowledge of God. And that is because God is kind and because he's gracious and he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Our knowledge is always limited, but you can know true things about who God is. 
And so really the purpose of these first few sermons on steadfast worship is that you and I would better know God, not just about him, not know more about the doctrine of the Trinity and making sure that you use all of your vocabulary and language right, as important as that is. The purpose of these first few sermons is to introduce or reintroduce you to the God that we worship. Usually when we talk about worship, we think first about ourselves. What is it that we do when we worship? How can I worship God better in my day-to-day life? What sorts of styles of worship do I like the best? And those are important questions to be sure. And we'll get to them as we move along through this series, as we talk about how we worship God in our day-to-day life and why it is that we do the things that we do here on a Sunday morning together as a body. But as our, our staff and as the folks who helped write the curriculum began planning this series, we felt like it was most important to begin by introducing us to who God is to pause and reflect on who he is. If we're going to be a people of steadfast worship, then we need to know about this steadfast God that we worship. We do not worship a generic God. We do not worship a nameless or faceless God. We worship a very specific God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the hope of these first few sermons is to orient our thoughts and our attention on him, to orient our hearts and our affections on him, who in his kindness has revealed himself to us so that we can know him in a very real way. Now, for some of us, maybe for all of us at one point or another in my sermon today or the sermon in the coming weeks, or as you're talking about the Trinity and talking about the nature of God in your small groups, there's going to be some of you, maybe all of us at some point or another who are going to say, so what? Well, what's the point of all of this? How does this apply to my day-to-day life to know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What's the point of all that? And sometimes in the sermons and in the curriculums, we are going to be able to connect the dots for us, to draw lines between who God is in his nature, in his person, and draw and connect some dots about what that means uh, for us in our day-to-day lives. But many of the times we will not do that or cannot do that, or we'll leave that up to you to do that, or at the end of the day go, I'm not sure what that means. I just know that this is what the scriptures say about who God is. And what I want to say is this, that um, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I really want our knowledge and our insights to apply to our life in the world. Like, I'm, I'm like on team practical when it comes to, to our knowledge and insight of the scriptures or anything else in the world, that I want us to be able to apply that for our life in the world. But knowing God better is reason enough. Knowing God is reason enough to learn and to study and to consider this topic. If you get to the end of these three or four weeks and you don't know how on Monday morning this should change you, but you feel like you know God better in your mind and your affections in him have, for him have grown, that is like an A plus in my book. Knowing God is enough because really all of our knowledge and insights and all of the things that we do 
in our life is for this purpose, knowing God. This is the thing itself. This is what our lives are meant to be moving toward, is the knowledge of God. This is the thing itself. So, let's, um, let's continue. And just, I just want to ask the question, why do Christians say that we worship the Trinity? If you don't know this, the Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. So why do Christians believe that God is Trinity, one God in three persons? I mentioned this earlier, but the reason that this teaching developed is because people met Jesus. And the earliest Christians were Jewish people who daily prayed the prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But they also knew that they had encountered Jesus and had, in a very real way, encountered this God, who they had been praying their whole lives, is one. When Jesus came onto the scene, Jesus acted as if he was God coming among his people. Jesus went into the world and he began to say things like this. Son, your sins are forgiven. And do you remember how people responded when he said that? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus didn't say, oh yeah, you're right, my bad. He then proved that he had the authority on earth to forgive sins and he would heal that crippled man and say, get up, take up your mat and walk. Jesus spoke to raging storms as if they would listen to him. Who does that? The creator. He taught with authority. He did not appeal to other teachers or to what the traditions of the day said about the law, about the Torah. He taught as if his word was the final word on the matter. He took the Torah and the law and he interpreted it in a way that was completely dependent on his presence, on his reality, on his life. We know he frequently talked about being the son of God. Jesus acted as if he was the God of Israel who would come among his people. He talked in ways also that pointed us to God's triune nature. He talked in ways where he... He makes it clear that there is a distinction between the Father and the Son and that he submits to the Father and that he, he doesn't do anything unless he hears the Father say to do it. And then at the same time, he says things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. We believe and worship the Trinity because of the way that Jesus came into the world and acted and the way that he spoke, the way that he revealed the triune nature to us through his life and through his teaching. And all of the outworking of the Trinitarian teaching in the church, the creeds that I spoke about earlier, uh, the ways that the, the New Testament writers talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, these are all based on the commitment that God is one, and that in Jesus, this one God in some mysterious way has come in the flesh to save us by revealing himself to us. And so I'll say that last point again, that God has come in the flesh to save us by revealing himself to us. 
One of the important things for us to remember as we think about worshiping the triune God is to remember that the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have always been the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father did not become a father when he created the world. He did not become a father when Jesus was born. God the Father has always been the Father. God the Son did not all of a sudden come into existence when Jesus was born. God the Holy Spirit was not generated on the day of Pentecost when God poured his Spirit into the world. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have eternally existed in these three persons before the world was ever created. And we believe this because of what Jesus says to us about himself and about his relationship with the Father. For example, in John chapter 17, we get to listen to the way that Jesus the Son prayed to his Father. And at one point in this prayer, he says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because... You have loved me before the creation of the world. Father, you have loved me before the creation of the world. The Father has always loved the Son before the world was ever made. God the Father has always been God the Father from all eternity. God the Father has always loved the Son in the Holy Spirit that binds them together. This is who God is. It's the nature of the God that you worship. And because God is Father, there are two things that I want to say today that we can know more about God. The first is this. Because God is Father, within the eternal being of God, there is love. Within the eternal being of God, there is love. This is why the Bible tells us God is is love within the divine nature within god's own being is love god cannot be love if he is solitary and alone at least not in his nature if god always existed as a solitary being then love would have to be secondary to god's nature we could not say that god is love but because the father loves the son in the fellowship of the holy spirit God forever has been love. The very center of the universe is love. At the very center of the universe, there's no conflict. There's no division. There's no anger. There's no animosity. The radiating reality, the source and the fountain of all things, the generating force that made you and me and the whole world is love. You exist out of an overflow of the love of God that flowed out to make creation. So I said last week, and I'm going to do this, I think, throughout our sermons, I believe that the Trinity is meant for our meditation and our contemplation. I just want you to simply meditate on this idea, to think about this idea, to contemplate it, that within the eternal being of God, there is love. Let's take a couple minutes to simply be quiet and to contemplate that truth. Second point in 
this revelation of God as Father is to say this, that God the Father has always been Father to the Son. God the Father is not an analogy. It's not an illustration to help us to understand something about God. God is Father, is not just a figure of speech to help our little human brains understand something. God is Father. It's his nature to be Father. So when the scriptures teach us to understand God as Father, we are not being told that we should imagine a really, really good earthly father. And once we've imagined that really, really good earthly father in our head, then we can apply that to God and somehow understand God a little bit better. That's not what the scriptures are saying when they say to us, God is father. I mean, that would be pretty good news in and of itself. It would certainly be more an intimate and loving idea than most conceptions of God that are out there in the world. But that's not what the scriptures are telling us when they say that God is father. The news is much, much better than that. When the scriptures tell us that God is father, it is saying that he is the original. He is the pattern He is father and has been father from all eternity. And so when he makes us his children, he's not becoming something other than he already is. God has been father from all eternity. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And so when he calls us his children, he's not taking on some new title or role. He's just living out who he already is. I want you to take a couple minutes to meditate on that, that God the Father has always been the Father to the Son. And because of that, that's why he can now invite you to be his child as well. Take a minute or two to meditate on that truth. The good news is that God, through his grace and his free decision, becomes God for us. Who he is and always has been, he then makes that available to us. And that is the good news of the gospel. He has always been a father. Fatherhood and sonship have always been a part of God's nature. And the good news is that God invites you right now to participate in a mysterious way in that divine reality. We are caught up into, invited into, able to participate in the eternal relationship that has existed forever between the Father and the Son. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Participate in the divine nature? What in the world does that mean? I don't know. Except to say this. This is one of those hole in the beach, trying to fill it up with the Mediterranean Sea kind of moment. Let me do my best to give you at least a little spoonful. The promise that you can participate in the divine nature 
is that when you are joined together with Jesus as his brother, the son opens up the way for you to participate in real sonship with the eternal father. You are participating in the divine nature that is the father loving the son in the spirit for all eternity. Our salvation is participating in this divine nature of the Trinitarian love that exists between these three. And so one of the ways that we can talk about the gospel, the good news is that through Jesus, we are caught up into the eternal life of God. We are let into this relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Brothers and sisters, you are not like a child of God. You are not an analogy like a child of God. You have become a child of God. Through faith in the Son, the Son has in a real way introduced you to the Father. And in that introduction, you meet the one who has always been Father and now calls you his Son. That is good, good news. And when you are included in this, it's the same way as like when we talk about the church being the bride of Christ, like it's the same thing. You are included in this sonship. Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says that God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. This is one of the many expressions that the scriptures give to us about the radical nature of the gospel of Jesus. What new identity that we have because of what Jesus has done in allowing us to be called sons of God. The Lord's Prayer is another. We've said it, said it so many times that we forget how radical it is to call God our Father. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, our Father, our Father. What a gift that this is who we pray to. Abba, Father. Jesus, on the night when he was in Gethsemane, on his knees, knowing that he was about to suffer and die, he cried out, Abba, Father. And friends, you and I are invited into that same kind of relationship. Not kind of relationship, but we are invited into that same relationship. That in our times of sadness and distress and depression, when you are up against the wall, when you have nowhere to turn, when you have been rejected by others, and when you have failed again, in those moments, you are called child. You can cry out in those moments, Abba, Father, the one who has always been a father, who is the original pattern, and he's really, really good at being a father. Understatement of the day. He's been doing it for a very long time. In all of those moments, you are a child of your Abba Father. The Abba Father is good, and he does not withhold any good thing for you, from you. And so you can come with him with all sorts of prayers in your distress and in your joy and experience him in the same way that Jesus experienced him. In his times of intimacy, in his times of temptation in the wilderness, in that moment of the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat tears of blood, he was living out this relationship with his father and he invites us to live 
into that relationship too. He has given us everything by giving us his son so that through his son, you and I can come to him as children and cry out, Abba, Father. So the last thing I just want to leave with you is this, is to ask you, what conception of God do you carry in your mind that needs to be put aside so that you can better come to know and love God the Father. Let's take some, a moment to pray about that, and then worship team, you can come on up, and we will sing and worship for a moment before we take communion. What conception, idea, image do you have in your mind that you need to put aside so that you can better love and know and worship God the Father?